Hola socios, hola equipo. My name is Neil. I'm Liam. This is John Norberger from Kansas City, Missouri, USA. Corey Field near Brisbane in Queensland. Edinburgh. Barcelona. And I'm a socio. I'm a socio. I'm a socio of the big interview. My name is Neil. I'm originally from Scotland, but now living in Barcelona. Hey, why did I become a socio? Well, you could reference uh, Mr. Hunter's knowledge and access to some great football characters, but I'm going to go for his exceptional use of swear words. He really seems to strike the right chord. They're not overused. (laughs) As a Scotsman, it's something I uh, really value. My favourite interview of the season, I'm going to go for Kevin Kilban. He came across as a really open, honest, funny and down-to-earth guy. In general, seemed like the sort of person you could happily sit down, have a pint with him and just listen to his stories. Hello Groovers, welcome to The Big Interview, it's me, Graham. Our guest this time is Mark Schwarzer, whose achievements with Middlesbrough, Fulham and Australia genuinely constitute the word legend. I meet Mark regularly across the Champions League at Mastaya at Camp Now. He's broadcasting for Optus and doing brilliantly. The reason we chose him is that he had an elite career, set records, made European finals. But beyond that, He's a very bright, interesting man, a great storyteller. You're about to listen to part one of this interview. We begin with his early years in Germany and some wonderful, legendary players like Johnny Ekstrom, the Swede, Jens Jeremies, remember him from the all-conquering Bayern Munich team, and the push factors that brought him to the Premier League via Chris Camara's Bradford. This is part one with Mark Schwarzer. You know me in the, in the big interview by now. You know that I merit this, this gorgeous, lush, leafy garden. And it's a bit of a castle that we're recording this particular big interview in. And to complement that, to complement the luxury, the five-star beauty of where we are, we've gone to a six-star man. <laughs> the idea that you're, you know, you're an international man, um, given your roots, which are German, Australian, you're bilingual at least, um, you are, you know, a linchpin of why, you're an example of why the Premier League has become great over your career. And um, I wonder what, as an Aussie, how England's won your heart? Because that's not the easiest combination in the world. Um, I think for, for me it was very easy. I mean, I came from Germany to begin with, so I went from Australia to Germany for two and a half years, and that period of time was a really difficult time. It was an unbelievable learning curve, one that... I don't, I don't regret. I'm actually fortunate that I, I experienced how hard it was. Um, so, but then, then the, the opportunity then came to come to England and I just felt like I was coming home. There were so many similarities to being in Australia um, in terms of the mentality. I, I, I love so many things about England. That's why we decided to stay here. So from day one, I felt at home. I felt first and foremost, as a footballer, I felt valued when I, when I came here, when Chris Kamara signed me back in the day. He's coming up. He's coming up. Um, to, you know, just every time I put on a shirt to, to go and play, I just felt at home. I felt... Well, what does that mean about being valued and compared to what? Well, when I went to Germany, uh, it was back in 1994. You're talking about Dresden originally. I was in Dresden, uh, 
turned up and, you know, it was five years after unification yeah. between East and West. Um, there, was, there was a real divide between East Germans and West Germans, let alone foreigners. So you were classed as being, you're from the West, so you're kind of a foreigner. So there was a divide even amongst the, the team. So a lot of these guys, there was an opportunity to make a lot of money after the unification. They didn't want anyone from the West coming in and taking any of their positions, any ah, of their okay. jobs, their teammates, their We finally had a break in life. Things are that's going right. away and look who's coming in now. Yeah, that's right. And me coming from Australia and then all just going, well, you know, he's got a German passport, but he speaks with his funny accent. He's from Australia. Um, what do they know about football? When you say act, funny accent, you were speaking in German too. I was speaking in German, yes. You couldn't, I mean, there was very few guys in the East part of Germany at that time that spoke in English. So I, I had to speak German and I, and I understood pretty much everything. Dealing with the accent, which was very different, the dialect was very different in East part of Germany in, in, uh, in Sachsen, as the, the, pro, the area is called, to what I was used to. My mum and dad sort of grew up around Stuttgart area, which is um, um, Schwäbisch. It's also, I mean, geographically, in terms of wealth. Yes, In very terms different. of self-perception, it's extraordinarily very, different. Very different. I mean, you know, you, you've got to go back in time and think about Second World War, 80% of Dresden was demolished. Um, this is a country, uh, a part of the world that was just rebuilding after unification. There were building sites everywhere. I remember going to a shopping centre and standing, looking, like wanting to buy something and then looking over to the cash register and there was a line about 20 metres long of people. And I just thought, what's going on here? Why is there no one else on the, any tills? And I looked over, there was another till about literally 20 metres away, and there was one person standing there, as in behind the, the till, waiting to, be, to serve people, but no one there. So basically what it was, was the locals were so indoctrinated about lining up, queuing for something, they just found it normal. They would stand in a queue, because back in, back in the, the time of communism, they would stand in queues for hours on end just to get bread, just to get the, the basic necessities and they were doing the same thing then. This was five years afterwards. And it was a world away from what I was used to, being 21 years old, moving to Germany for, on my own, understanding a lot of the language but needing to learn it a lot better. I had a, I had a teammate who was from the West, who lived in the, in the same estate where I was living, and he spoke with a bit of a stutter, and, it, and nobody could understand him, and he was German. Wow. So they would, he would speak, and they would turn to me and go, what did he say? Was this because their, their world had been so sheltered? That part of it was that. Part of it was the fact that he started got worse when he was speaking to guys that he wasn't that comfortable with. I was with him every day and he could speak quite normally with me and wouldn't be, wouldn't be nervous. And obviously I got, I got to, to uh, know his dialect, his, 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 you know, his pronunciations and um, I could understand everything he was saying. So I would then, this is this Aussie who had been there for a couple of months, was translating for the Germans for a German. It was bizarre. Did, 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 did the city have any sort of lend and feel to it, even though unification had come? Or was there still a concept of people looking at the inhabitants? Was, was there a dearth of goods? Um, no, it was, it was, there was an influx from the West, and, and, and there was, I think, too much too quickly for people to digest. Um, and then there was this, this influx of a lot of Western investment, the, the city was being completely renovated. Um, and uh, I think people were just, they were amazed at but what it was like to be in a Western society. You know, things that were just at their disposal, like normal. It was easy to get that previously they never had. And, and I think that was the biggest. I mean, I remember having another teammate there. He was from, um, he was from East Germany and he was telling me stories about, his mum and dad are both 
both um, uh, deaf. And they were one of, I think his father was in the military and they were on welfare in the east part of Germany. And, and he was saying that pre-unification, pre there was the Stasi police. So he was investigated all the time. Everyone was expected to spy upon yeah. each other. And he was telling me stories like it was proper spy stuff. So he'd receive a message, something like, I don't know, the sun is gonna shine in the morning. And he knew what that meant. That's a code. That was a code. And he was expected to, to spy on a teammate. And in turn, he was being spied on. And everyone was spying on everyone. And they told him, they threatened him. They said to him, if you didn't, your parents would lose their benefits. And, you know, it, it was insane. The stories that you used to hear. I don't want to move away from the social, but like you, you, you started to equate your, your feeling of comfort in England from having bridged from Sydney via Dresden and another place. But I can't, because I'm just self-indulgent. I can't go past Dresden without asking you about um, two guys. Jens Jeremies, yep. who was about to bloom. Yep. And Johnny Ekstrom, who I think yep. maybe his best, well, best days had gone. Yeah, it's right at the end of it. genuinely extraordinary footballers, neither of whom I've met. Yeah, I mean, Johnny Ekstrom, the nicest man in the world. I mean, he came, again, he came from Italy at the time, turned up and, you know, he was just the most relaxed man in the world. Bit of a specimen, I remember, I mean, he, yeah. Swedish, we're talking about, for those who don't know, Swedish centre forward. Yep. I think Gothenburg had been his. I, I think that's where he started off. Yeah. It was not a test. No. I think so. If yeah, I'm, wrong, I'm pretty sure it was. If I'm wrong, Swedes, you know, <laughs> tell me. He, um, you know, he was a proven goal scorer. He was something that we we genuinely needed a player to, to try and score goals for us in the Bundesliga. Dresden were always punching above their weight. It was a club that, behind the scenes, it was boiling over in terms of the way it was run. They had a president. That's another story altogether. Who was always on the, on the borderline or on, the, on an edge of legal and illegal dealings. And as it turns out, he ends up in prison uh, not so long afterwards. Um, the club pretty much loses, it loses its license and goes into amateur league because of it. Um, but anyway, it, yeah, he, he was a phenomenal player. He was someone that everyone looked at as the person that was gonna hopefully keep Dresden in the Bundesliga. And as we all know, one player necessar not necessarily is going to do it. I mean, it can be a big influence. Um, but uh, it was, he was never going to really, with the players that we had around. Jens Jeremies, I, I, you know, he was a young kid coming through. I, I'm pretty sure I made my Bundesliga debut at the same time as he did um, in the game against uh, Eintracht Frankfurt. Yeah. And, uh, whole, you know, all heart um, and just an unbelievable engine. And he just ran and ran and ran. And, uh, you know, he turned out to be a phenomenal player. I mean, he was, you could see the signs already there at a very young age, good kid, you know, someone who was so hungry to succeed. He'd go on to be a motor of that extremely good Bayern Munich yep. team, reaching the, the Champions League final two, two, three times in this piece of very short. Yep. And what seemed to me added to his game wasn't, wasn't just that initial seek and destroy running power. Once he got the ball, yes. he actually became quite, com without, without necessarily being Hoddle-esque, he became quite commanding about what he, once he'd won the ball high, he'd release it really well and, yes. and people fed off him, I that's thought. That's right, yeah, that's right. No, no, he, he, uh, he, was a, he, was a, he was really a diamond in the rough at the time. Mm. And, uh, and it was very unfortunate for Dresden at the time to, to lose its license, get be relegated, lose its license, because I think, you know, he may have stayed a bit longer had they stayed in the Bundesliga. Um, maybe not, but you know he was a player that I think particularly Dresden will uh, will see as one of their own and, and be very fond of what he achieved. So the president's not yet in jail, okay? No. Nope. It's Saturday the 6th of May 
And by tea time on Saturday, the 6th of May, 95, was your dad a bit pissed off with you? Uh, <laughs> because Stuttgart came to town yeah. with Thomas Berthold playing, yeah. um, Dunga playing, Gio Elber, Freddie yeah. Bobic. Freddie Bobic, who's now, I think he's Eintracht Frankfurt um, director of football. I, I think could, he might I, be. I could yeah, be wrong about that. Right. And um, I don't know if that was your dad's team, Stuttgart. It, yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. And um, Jeremy scores. Well, both of the games I played in, I was very fortunate for a lot of reasons. My, my, my fortunate scenario was that we were pretty much almost relegated. And when I say that, I mean the, the, the president at that stage um, wasn't then, wasn't willing to spend a lot of money. So, and, and what that means is that at the time, internationals didn't have, didn't have breaks, we didn't have breaks in the league. So international teams were playing and they would have to go and they go and play the national team games and come back and they'd potentially miss games. Previously, up until those two games, um, the, the, the chairman or the president kept paying for a private jet for the number one goalkeeper, Stanislav Chichesov, who is now Russia's national team coach, who managed them at the World Cup, Confeds Cup, and he was the number one goalkeeper. And uh, he kept bringing him back very quickly after international means to make sure he was fit and ready to play for the games. And then because we looked like we weren't going to stay in the league, and I think maybe the manager at the time said to him, you know, you should give him a go, you know, that for me, regarding to me, and, um, and for whatever reason, he, he decided not to bring, uh, not pay for the private jet, and I ended up playing those two games. And I played really well in both of those games. And in both of those games, I felt very unfortunate to concede goals and lose against Eintracht Frankfurt, but also to concede very late against Wolfsburg Stuttgart. Um, so yeah, it was very, very disappointing, but I felt that I'd, I'd uh, performed really well at that level. Was there something riding on the game at all, the fact that it was your dad's team? We still had a chance to stay in. So there was still hope that we could stay in the Bundesliga and obviously we hadn't given up. So, you know, I thought, I thought, you know what, if I can come in here and make a difference and we can keep a clean sheet and we can even do the unexpected and win against a very, very strong five-bear Stuttgart side, then you never know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll get a chance to keep my spot. But it wasn't to be. The fact that Dresden prepared you for England, yeah. either that's the factor or, or, or Chris Camera is the factor. Well, I think... I think it was the whole German experience. So it was Dresden to start with. Um, we got relegated and I moved on to Kaiserslautern. And again, it was that experience of Kaiserslautern, um, 18 months of it, the trials and tribulations of it, um, having an opportunity to play in the first team, played well in my first game, second game, okay. Third and fourth, I didn't play so well. And then I got, obviously I was out of the side, which is understandable. Um, and then there was the teammates issue. Um, there was a goalkeeper there, Gary Ammon, who had been at the club forever. And he was living in the past, talking about every time we'd train on, this, on, the, on the stadium, he'd talk about a game against Barcelona. They beat Barcelona one time in a, in, a, in, a, in a European Cup game. And he was 37 years old and didn't want to do the training, but wanted to sit on the bench each week because he, he would financially Eagle. gain for it. Okay, okay. And he would just, at every opportunity he had, he would put me down. So I got called up to the national team completely out of the blue. And it was something that I, I, I only got called up because um, I think it was Mark Bosnich at the time pulled out last minute. And I was the closest one there and they called me up. And I remember coming in after training and, and I, as I walked in, Gary Amman talking to, I think it was Andreas Bremer. And they said, oh, did you hear? You know, Mark's been called up to the national team. And he went, what, for basketball? So that was kind of like forever you were always put down and i felt i was always being put down all the time i never had the respect from my teammates and that's a hard that's a hard environment to be in mm -hmm. so you're you're continuously fighting firstly to have an opportunity to play on the team but getting respect from your own teammates was was almost non-existent for me so 
that experience, and then you, we had Otto Rehagel come in as manager, and he just didn't like young players at all. So I found myself being on the bench to being out of the team altogether. And when I asked him about it, he just said, well, we've got Gary Ammon here. I want to see if he's still able to sit on the bench. I went, well, what, 37, you want to know if he can still sit on a bench? And I just went, I didn't understand it. And fortunately for me at the time, Hans-Peter Briegel Oof. was the, uh, the team manager. Okay. So I went straight to see him. And he must have been relatively young for a team manager. He was quite young, stage. yes, that's right. And I went, and it was, I think it was one of his first jobs as being a, a, um, a manager of a club. So I went straight to him and I said to him, listen, you know, unfortunately I've tried everything. This new manager does not care about young players. This is what my situation is. I need to get out of here. For the sake of my sanity, for the sake of my career, I need to leave. And, I, and he goes, okay, let me, let me talk to the manager, I'll come back to you. So literally in a day or two, he came back to me, went a meeting, and he said, the ma- I've spoken to the manager, the manager said, you can go. So that's all I needed to know. So from that point onwards, it was no longer about that team, that club, it was about getting myself right and ready to go on trial somewhere. Because I knew I had to go trial somewhere. And my object was, my, my prime objective was to try and get out of Germany and go to England. Why England? Because it was a league that I felt that goalkeepers were always respected and appreciated. And I knew the league. I followed it as a kid. On TV? All the time. We had some Australian players playing there. We had Mark Bosnich playing there. It was kind of the forefront of Australian goalkeepers overseas. John Filan, Steve Mortone. We had a list of goalkeepers who were, who were playing in England or at various clubs. So my wife wanted to work. She's got a degree in economics and majored in finance, so I wanted to go back into working. That was the best place for her to go. And um, we, by chance, this national team call up, I, made, I, I spoke to various players, every player that was playing in England. So we had Lucas Neal, Harry Kuehl, um, Kevin Muscat, Stan Lanzarides, all these guys were playing in England, and I was asking every one of them, who's your agent? Kevin, in his part, was terrorising England rather Absolutely. than just playing in England. Absolutely. I, I think it's worth making that clear. Absolutely. And, and all of them came back with with one agent, basically, who was helping Australian players, and it was Barry Silkman. Um, and, and Barry arranged, literally within a week, a trial for me at Manchester City at the time where Steve Koppel was the manager. And uh, I arranged everything for my club in Germany. And, uh, and, and as fate would have it, the number one goalkeeper gets injured. So then I'm expected to sit on the bench, because then I'm no longer number two, I'm number three. Had I been number two, I probably would have played in the second, because Kaiserslautern at the time got relegated and won the second division. And I potentially would have played. And who knows, my career may have taken yeah. a completely different turn. Who knows? But it wasn't to be. And they still allowed me to go, so long as I was back for each game. So I could go on a, on a, on a Saturday, uh, sorry, a Sunday after a game, so long as I was back on the Friday, that was fine. So I managed to go to Manchester City and, and, and went on trial there for a week. Uh, Alex Stepney was the goalkeeping coach. Oh, what a legend. And uh, he was brilliant. And I trained. Alex Hands, yeah. after the Champions League final in Glasgow, I met him and I talked to him because he was always punching and catching leather balls yeah. that were wet. Alex's hands have been massive. That's right. Not as they were born, no. but bruised and battered and yeah. swollen. And yeah, and funny how it is, you know, like the, the German connection always followed me. So I go to Manchester City and they had Ike Immel, mm-hmm. Michael Fronsek, and Uwe Rosler at the club. And Ike Immel at the time was on the outer. Um, and they were looking, they were desperately looking for another goalkeeper. So we're there on trial and I played, uh, I trained with them and then I played friendly behind closed doors and everything went really, really well. 
and they went, right, we need you back to play in a reserve grade game, mm -hmm. in a proper official game. Yeah. So I went back to Germany and a couple of weeks later, there was another reserve grade game coming up and I managed to come back over again and play in it. And who was it against? It was against Bradford City at, um, in Bradford. And, uh, and funny enough, Phil Neal was the, 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 the assistant manager and he was taking the, the, the reserve grade Phil game. Phil Neal who, who won so many European Cups That's for right. Liverpool fullback. That's right. Yeah. And he, he, uh, uh, the, the story goes, he walked into the office where Chris Kamara was sitting and said to him, right, how good your team? You've got a good team out there today. And he said, yeah, listen, I've got a pretty good team. We've got a pretty number of, number of first-team players coming back from injury, some players just getting some games. And yeah, yeah no, no, we've got a strong team. He says, great. He says, we've got this goalkeeper on trial and he's been doing really well all week and we really want to test him. Anyway, so I play the game and I play really well and we won 1-0 and we should have lost. But I won one, we won one nil. Because you played well, right? I played well. Okay. And Chris Kamara got on to the, found out who my agent was and called him straight after the game and said, we want him. So I was kind of like sitting there and it was ironic again, I was sitting in the bus and we got a whole lot of fish and chips, chips delivered to us on the bus. And I just couldn't believe it. I was just like, this is amazing. This is like, you know, this is what I'm missing. <laughs> and my agent rang me and said, listen, I've got, Bradford City on the phone and they want you to come in. I said, listen, I said, that's great, fantastic. I said, but we've got to do the right thing by Manchester City first and foremost. They brought me over. They have first opportunity to, to see whether they want to sign me. And anyway, so it went on for a while. And then apparently what happened was, I, I, well, I spoke to uh, Steve Coppola the next day. He told me they wanted to buy me. I was 155,000 pounds to buy outright. That's a chunk of change at that stage. Uh, yeah, it was, it was okay. It was, 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 was very reasonable. And Steve Koppel apparently was promised £10 million at the time to, to buy, on, buy players when he first went to Man City. And I was apparently like the third or fourth player that he tried to sign for little money. And the club kept saying, no, you can't. You can take him on loan. And I refused to go anywhere on loan. I wanted a clean, yeah. clean break from, yeah. from Germany. Play for somebody that, that's shown they want you. That's right. And... Uh, Two days later, Steve Koppel resigned. Uh, it didn't last long. It so I apparently was the final one yeah. where he wasn't allowed to, to buy that he walked and went, there's no point. And he walked. So Phil Mill took over, still wanted to sign me, but this stage the club was in disarray. Yeah. I mean, I had a contract sent over. There was a zero missing off figures. It was a nightmare. And in the end, at this point, it had dragged on for probably a good four or five weeks. And then Bradford were hot on, hot on to it. They were ready, were they? And they, they again wanted to loan me. I said, no. Nah, no chance, I need to go permanently. So they went, okay, we'll buy you. And um, at this stage, then we decided, you know what? Only fair is fair now. Man City have had enough opportunity to buy me. They couldn't sort themselves out. And uh, I ended up signing for Bradford City. I used to work at Sky um, as on Revista and come in from Spain and see Chris camera around quite a yeah. lot. Yeah. And, and we'd stayed in the same hotel once. I saw him at reception, he was going on out. And he said, I'm going out to sing. I said, oh. Brilliant, hey, a karaoke singer. And I, I swear to you, he, he, because, you know, Chris is a sort of English version of Sinatra. Yes, you? that's right. And it's a, he's a professional singer. That's right. But, so I'm asking you now, as a first time witness, can he sing? Yeah, I think he can, yeah. Did you, yeah, did you never sing to you as, as manager? No, not as manager. So he was a different Chris Kamara as a manager than he is now. You saw glimpses of what he is now as a manager. Meaning? Well, the oh, Julians or the. Oh, you know, he, was, he, was he was very emotional. He was up and down like this all the time. I remember one game we played away at uh, Crystal Palace and uh, we were winning 1-0 and uh, we were being bombarded. And I was coming out taking crosses and, and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, they scored two late goals. One was from a cross 
Um, and I can't remember the other ones. Anyway, after the game, he's come in and he's lambasted me and said, you should have come out and taken that cross. And I went, I mean, this is a game where I come out and talk everything. And I think that's the problem. The problem was I kept coming out and taking stuff. And then when someone scored from a header, he's like, well, how come he's in taking that one? So he lambasted me and I just went, gaffer, I don't know. I said, from my perspective in that game, I don't believe I could have. But unless you tell me otherwise, and let's go and watch it on the video, you tell me that, then I'll hold my hand up. But I said, from my understanding of it in the game, I don't think I could have come for it. Anyway, fast forward it, training the next day, calls me up and says, listen, you're right, I'm sorry. So it, it was just emotional all over the place. That's very good. It was very good. That's unusual. There's very few managers that can do that. They won't back down because they no. see, even if they've been wrong, they see it as, a, oh, yeah. as, as undermining their own authority. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. He, he, was, he was great. And I, I, listen, my experience with Chris Kumar was brilliant. I mean, he, you know, he was a manager that I knew believed in me. Uh -huh. He trusted me. Of course, I performed for him. But it works two ways, because you know that someone believes you. It's like me going to Fulham with Roy Hodgson. I knew, and Mike Kelly and, and, and Ray Lewington, I knew they had my back. They, they, they believed in me. And even if I made a mistake, I'd come in and go, listen, guys, I'm really sorry, I, I made a mistake. they go... Above any position in that football team, a keeper knowing that is, is paramount. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this whole thing about swapping and changing, I don't ever see it working that out that well. There's, I find it just creates so much uncertainty amongst the goalkeepers. And I think uh, we saw it at Liverpool a couple of seasons ago with, with Carrius and Mignolet. They end up having two goalkeepers that don't perform well because they don't know whether one mistakes you out of the team. See, I grew up when, when England couldn't decide between Shilton and Clements. Yep. And they rotated them. Yes. Not all the time, yes. but very regularly, particularly Ron Greenwood. And nobody else around Britain was doing that no. at all. You're a first-choice goalkeeper, second-choice goalkeeper. Because they were so good, it seemed to work. I know that it, it, it certainly wasn't what either of them wanted, but, and again, it's not a club side, so maybe there's internationals, a slight difference. Internationals, I, I get it, because you're playing week in, week out for your club, and then when you get together from internationals, it, it works. You're still, often, in between, you're still getting the hard action yes. that you need. Yes, you are. And whereas at a club, you're not. You know, you're, you're back in and out, in and out all the time, and it does play on you. And, and goalkeepers, it's like any play, you need a run of games to play yourself into a game. Today it's even harder because when I went to, to Chelsea, it was, you know, it was, I was told, I mean, I was at the latter stages in my career, but Jose Mourinho said to me, listen, I want two goalkeepers that I know I can rely on. Obviously, Petr Cech's number one, you're coming as a number two, but you will play enough, num enough, enough games. Because at the time, I was still playing in the national team and I yeah. wanted to go to the World yeah. Cup in 2014. 14, yeah. And, um, you know, I, 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 and, and then what ended up happening towards Christmas time, he's like, he actually apologised to me and said, you haven't played the amount of games I thought you'd play. And a lot of that was to do with the fact that Pedro never got injured mm -hmm. that season mm -hmm. until right at the end. He, every other season up until that point, he was injured a number of times throughout the course of the season. But for whatever reason, that season, he didn't get injured until Champions League semi-final away at Atletico Madrid. And it was hard. So for me, it was always hard that when you get a chance, you have to try and perform because if you don't, then they start to ask questions. Is the second goalkeeper the one, the right one? Because he can't just come in and play. He can't play at the level we need so to play So this is the at. first leg, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I would honestly say, now not from an English perspective, because I've learned to distance myself from yeah. the English media, which is like, English team against somebody else, well, we're going to win a quarter. Yeah. I still think Chelsea probably went into that tie slight favourites. Yeah, possibly. I mean, the thing about squads and managers. Well, Madrid and... had a very strong home record no, in the Champions League, and 
there was definitely no sense of taking for granted and underestimating the opposition. We knew they were a very good side. And, and we were really happy with a nil-nil draw away from home. Obviously, we'd love to have scored a goal, but the way the game unfolded, losing Petter, when you lose a, an influential player like that, it's, it's often, it can be the downfall of a team. But you were ready in every way, given what you'd gone yes. through. You, no nerves, no worry about your form. No, it was kind of like, you know what? This is what you're trained for. This is what you've been brought in for. Just go out there and play. Did you ever look out the corner of your eye about, oh, here's Costa? No. No, I, I, I enjoyed it. It was actually one of my, one of the fa my, my favourite games to have played in. I just I loved it. It was a lot of. I was going to say that the Calderon is your type of stadium. Yeah, too. it was brilliant. A lot of there was a lot of balls into the box, high balls. There was a lot of confrontation. There was a lot of a lot of, a lot of uh, you know 50-50 challenges. Costa was always in there. I, I love that. I mean, you look at throughout my career in the in the Premier League, and often I bump into Dion Dublin, and we all often joke about about that there's very rarely that contact in the box anymore between a goalkeeper and, and, and a big centre you, you, forward. You, they, they bring in the international core of human rights, don't we, they, now? We, we used to have the biggest tussles, you know, uh, Peter Crouch, when you used to go to Stoke and come up against that Stoke front, you know, the whole team, how big they were, Shawcross come up front, you know, Walters and, you know, and the rest that come in the box and they just, they bombard you, they run into you, they do all sorts to you. And, and, and Dunga Ferguson at Everton, they talk about that FA Cup game, when I played Bradford City against uh, against well, you won three two at Goodison. Won three two, but Duncan, that, but Ferguson. Duncan was a different kind of absolutely, was a, was... absolutely. Yeah, you just had to be nice to him. It killed him if you're nice to him. If you fought with him, he loved it, and he wanted to rip your head off, and you didn't want to mess with him because he's he's that type of character. But if you were nice to him, he was he, he didn't know how to deal with it. It was almost like this guy's a nice guy. I don't want to I don't want to hurt him. But if he, he had a reason then to it's fight It's just you. as well this, this, that, that comment was never released during his career because you could have ruined his life. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, but we, a lot of us knew. Like, it was like, right, just be nice to Duncan. Don't, you know, just... Tell well, him, don't talk, get under his skin. Talk about his pigeons. Talk about everything else. He, he, he loves them more than Absolutely. life itself, doesn't he? So it was like, just don't make him angry. When I was younger, I, I, I fell into the trap a few times and I, he bumped into me and, or, or, you know, a slight bit of an elbow and you had a go at him and he just like, you see that look, those Love eyes. That. Love that. Oh, it's me and you for the next yeah, 70 minutes, yeah. mate. It was like, and then afterwards it was like, oh, what have I just done? That's, that was a wrong move. Yeah, so I, I did it a few times and, and yeah, he, he let you know. player who you kind of know is going to run in and if he can't get the ball, you know he's going to catch you yep. as you're up there and do that. Yeah. To take you from about the thigh, if you go in hard the thighs where you're off the ground, there's going to be a sort of cartwheel yeah. effect. Yeah. And whether you get the foul or the card or whatever, it's you and Mother Earth and the ball. And I broke my back doing it. I was going to say, there's going to be breakages. I, I broke my back at Swansea. Um, uh, Routledge, ball came far post, and as I came out to take it, he stopped and turned and bent over. Yeah. And, my, and it flipped my legs over. And I flipped over and I landed on my shoulders and, and uh, my neck, and my legs flipped back, and I, I fractured my T9. Um, and I, and, sorry, and, sorry, sorry, sorry. T9? Uh, so on the spinal cord, so uh, the, your, your vertebrae, I spoke, not the spinal cord, but on the spine. I, I, I wish I hadn't asked now. T9. I think I knew, but... So top 10% of it. So it's, and what that bone does is it crumbles. It doesn't break in terms like when you break your arm. Is it that like a shock, shock absorber? Or yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, it was, yeah, it ends up being like that. Yeah, and it crumbled the top 10% of it. So obviously I got, I was, I was seen to on the pitch and you don't think that. You know, I'm like, oh, I've hurt my back, it's a bit sore, can I keep, yeah, it's actually, I think I can keep going. I end up finishing the game. And I got assessed after the game by the doc, and the doc went, nah, listen, I don't think it's anything too serious. <laughs> then I went to training on the Monday, and I was like, nah, this is not right, I need to go and get a check. So they sent me for a scan and went straight into the specialist office, and he went, right, 
says, um, you need a break, you need a rest. I went, like, what do you mean? Like, just for a couple of days? He went, no, 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 you, you can't play for another couple, of, you know, you won't be able to play for another couple of weeks now. And I went, and he goes, because you might not walk off. And I went, what do you mean? I won't walk off and I'll be all right? And he goes, no, 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 you, you might not walk ever again. I went, okay, I'll take a rest. <laughs> and the thing was, at the time, my contract was so, I had to play 90% of the games up until Christmas for me to give another extension. Renewal, yeah. And there were four games left. I needed to play one game to get 90% of the games. <laughs> so, obviously I didn't make it. And I was from the injury to playing again, it was 10 weeks. I was back playing in 10 weeks. But the club were brilliant. After four weeks, after the second, second scan and seeing the specialist, and the specialist went, everything's fine, you'd be great. They renewed my contract. But there were clubs and executives who'd stiff you on that. Absolutely. I mean, they waited, obviously, which you'd expect them to do. They waited for the all-clear from the specialist, and once they got the all-clear, yeah. they... You say they you wanted... expect them to do it. That's exactly yeah. my point. Yeah. I expect... Yeah. We, we, we as fans, yeah. not as journalists, you know, when you're out there, you, you're fighting for us. Yeah. You're carrying our standard. Yeah. And we want our knights to yeah. be looked after by the Absolutely, realm. Absolutely, yeah. And that's not what happens a lot of the no, time. No, they were great. They, they, they honoured Good it, for them. And they were, they were great. Thank you for joining us for season 2018-19. We've got huge creative plans for the months ahead, but we do need your help to make them happen. Please go right now to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and become a socio, become a paying member and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. Last season, socios listened to nine exclusive big interviews including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, Roberto Di Matteo and loads of me talking about football. The Premier League, the Champions League, Spanish football. I'm sure they enjoyed it and you will too. Support us, join us. Thank you.